Hey, everybody, this is Joe with a special announcement. We've just doubled our listener base to over 12,000 subscribers in the last two months. We'd like to take a moment to welcome our new listeners and to thank our listeners, new and old, for spreading the word and supporting the show. Going into season three of Entheogen, we've launched a Patreon campaign, and we'd like to invite you to please support us by pledging between $2 and $10 per episode. Please visit entheogenshow.com and click on support. And thanks again. This is Entheogen. Talk about tools for generating the divine within. Find the notes and links for this and other episodes at entheogenshow.com. Sign up to receive an email when we release a new episode. Follow us at Entheogen Show on Twitter and like Entheogen Show on Facebook. Today is October 23rd, 2016, and we are talking with Dr. Jamie, a psychologist in the Bay Area of California. Jamie, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. I feel really honored to be on your show. Great to have you, Jamie. Uh, also, we have to mention that Jamie is a, a good personal friend, and uh, so this is a kind of a special episode for us. Aw, thanks, Kevin. I feel like it's a <laughs> chat amongst family members. Exactly. Mm-hmm. That's right. Burning Man family, the best family. Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and we'll we'll get into uh, some of our experiences at uh, at the burn um, because you and I got to hang out a bunch uh, in the Zendo training and the Zendo volunteering, and we got to see Rick mm. talk, um, and among other things, it was it was a lot of fun. Um, but your day to day life, uh, you you are a psychologist in the Bay Area, mm-hmm. as I mentioned, and you specialize in couples therapy. So can you give mm-hmm. listeners an idea of you know what your sort of a typical uh, day is like? Well, I don't really have a typical day, but I can talk about my favorite kind of day. Um, my favorite kind of day is when I actually work with a couple all day long, which I think to the um, uninformed would be kind of scary sounding or at best just horrible sounding. <laughs> Who wants to be in therapy all day long? <laughs> just, do, do you like tap their house or how does that work? <laughs> you just follow them around? Uh, yeah, that would, that, I've always thought actually it would be quite informative to go to my couple's houses and um, watch them. But no, that's not what we do. We, we, we do sit in my office, um, but the work is really fun and um, very positive, and people end the day feeling really connected and usually really in love and really happy with each other um, because the format that I use is not at all like hashing out your problems. It's about finding finding the dreams in your relationship, finding um, about how to really connect with each other, how to really hear each other deeply. And it's just, it's really rewarding work and, uh, and I love it. So my favorite days are when I do therapy all day. <laughs> wow. And so that's all day. It sounds like a very intensive sort of process, but also very, um, you know, uh, in some ways, uh, you know, light um how how where does that fit into like a typical sort of like uh, course of therapy is that like where you would start with Mm -hmm. with clients or in the middle or the end or how does that work that's actually something i'm experimenting with right now because it's a new format for me um my teacher only does intensives her intensives are two days and she um starts out that way there's no intro session at all and then if they need to come back they come back and do another intensive Um, but what I've been doing is having a sort of typical hour and a half session just to get to know each other so they can decide whether they want to dive into that work with me or not Um, sometimes we go back and forth we do you know hourly weekly sessions and then we'll do a day and then we'll go back to weekly right now I'm kind of just doing whatever works for them Cool. I like that idea too, as an analogy to, um, you know, an experience, a therapeutic experience, at least with, you know, a psychedelic compared to a traditionally prescribed method where instead of it building on, you know, these kind of small experiences every few weeks or so, you can have one, uh, immersive experience and have it probably be really effective and long lasting and not necessarily Mm -hmm. requiring a, a prescriptive approach going forward. That's pretty mm-hmm. cool. I hadn't mm-hmm. heard of that format before. That's awesome. Yeah, and there's a lot of brain research that's really supporting this format in that our brain 
is habitual and has patterns and it's really hard to change those patterns and habits in an hour. So we really do need an immersive experience to rewire our neural patterns. Oh, shaking the snow globe. Yeah, exactly. And when it comes to couples, you know, man, our, our habits are so deep because they've actually stemmed all the way from childhood. And so there's no, it, you know, trying to change things in an hour a week is just banging your head against the wall sometimes. In a bad way, you mean? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. Can you tell the listeners a little bit about how you got into couples therapy in particular and why you got into couples therapy? Sure. Um, I didn't know it at the time, um, but research is me search, right? And <laughs> so when I started grad school, all I was interested in researching was couple stuff. And it's really because all my life I've known what I really wanted was a really happy, loving, connected relationship. And I knew I wasn't going to have it based on how I grew up. You know, my role models were alcoholic parents, divorce, uh, emotional dysregulation, narcissism, like all kinds of things that are not conducive to having a happy marriage. So it's really been all about me all along. But I've always known that that was the specialty I wanted to have. And, you know, I, I even picked the grad school I went to based on the fact that they let me study in two programs at once. So I did clinical work focusing on Uh, marital therapy, and I did my research in the social psychology department, which was an entirely different department, and studied attachment theory um, as it relates to romantic relationships. And then I got into private practice and um, found that couples therapy is really hard, (laughs) really hard, especially when you don't have your own shit figured out yet. So I had to go (laughs) through like 10 or 12 years of additional training and figuring out myself before I felt like I really had enough skill to call myself a specialist. I was going to say, Jamie, I think I, I, I agree with you on uh, the, the growing up and the sort of the family background. And I, I feel like I'm probably still about 50 years away from being able to give anyone else advice. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, a lot of us are in that boat. So as long as, as we recognize it and have some compassion about it, it's all good. <laughs> mm. So the uh, one of the, um, I guess, frameworks, I'm not sure what you'd call it, that, uh, that you use in your practice is imago therapy. Can you talk, just mm-hmm. tell us what, what that is exactly? Sure. Um, um, let's see. Where to start with that? Um, so imago is the Latin word for image. And it's named imago because it's based on the fact that we all develop in image of what love means to us based on how our parents loved us as kids, both good and bad. And when I say image, it's not really an image. It's really the felt experience of what kind of caregiving we got. And that creates a template. And that template is our imago. And then we grow up and we unconsciously look for someone who's going to match our template based on how we were loved. And So we think that we're choosing our partner on all these kind of conscious things like, you know, what they look like or how funny they are. But really, we fall in love with someone who matches this unconscious template from childhood of what love means to us. And so the work of Imago is unraveling that and figuring out exactly what your template looks like and why you picked each other and what that means about you and what kind of personal growth path comes from that. And one of the foundations of Imago is that we pick the perfect person because they're going to highlight all the ways that we need to heal and grow. And when we see that all our frustrations and complaints and concerns that we have about our partner is really about ourselves, then we can actually make our relationships work. I still remember the the moment that I, I realized that was like a tendency that I had um, when I was, I don't know, 18 or 19. I remember being really annoyed with this coworker of mine and just feeling like, ah, this person is always this way and always does this. And, and I'm, I'm thinking of this list in my head and realizing these are the things I don't like about myself. That's I'm hitting on <laughs> something here. You know? 
Mm-hmm. So this is why this person annoys me, like in a um, you know disproportionate way, I guess. Right. Yes. And usually that person turns out to be our spouse. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What were you gonna say, Kevin? Oh, no, I was going to say that that sounds like, you know, I can imagine two people go, kind of going through that work and they'd be like, you know, coming to that realization. And then it's like, oh, shit, like, what are we going to do about this? We can either just break up right now or we can take this as like each other's greatest challenge. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like, mm-hmm. it seems like uh, it's like a, it's a, a very, very, uh, I don't know, it sounds like a very cool, cool method. I'll have to check that yeah. out a little bit more. Yeah. And I literally tell people that and I tell them. You know, you can figure this out or you can break up and go figure it out with the next person because you're going to yeah. do the same thing with a slightly different shade of whatever uh, next time. Mm-hmm. I have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> None of us do. No, no so, negative patterns at all, right? <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> So, Jamie, you got into Imago, and then I think um, I remember talking to you at Burning Man on our way back from the Zendo training about um, sort of the direction this has evolved. Um, there's sort of a new, did you, yeah. how did you put it, Imago on steroids or Imago on acid <laughs> or something like that? Yes, that's exactly what I, I call it. I should point out, yeah. not literally for our listeners, not literally right, on right. anything. Not yet. Not yet. <laughs> right. <laughs> so steroids are on their way <laughs> right yes so my new um, fascination is with encounter centered couples therapy or ECCT and uh, the creator of it is a woman named Heidi Schleifer who was an imago therapist for I don't know maybe 20 years and she just um, developed it in her own direction in a way that really deepens the work and makes it more spiritual and more um, just more powerful because she really puts the work in the laps of the couple. Um, So Mm. the therapist is not really, um, the therapist isn't guiding. Well, that's not true. They're guiding even more, but they're guiding the process. They're not guiding the content. So a lot of the trouble with couples therapy is therapists and couples get all hung up on the content of whatever it is they're talking about, right? Whether it's money or um, parenting, but it's not about the content. It's about the process between the, the two people. And so she's really a master of how do you get two people to really stay connected no matter what the content is. Did you say that was encounter-centered couples therapy? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the word, the name of it comes from um, the encounter is what happens when you feel really connected with each other. So Imago is based on having dialogues, and a dialogue is a very structured conversation where you have to follow these certain rules in order to not get off track. So you know how how every fight starts with like this ping pong match, right? Of he said, she said, or whatever. You just, you go back and forth and you get nowhere. Once again, I've never been there. Yeah, I'm sure. (laughs) Theoretically, I could see. I I know a guy, a a friend of a friend. (laughs) (laughs) So in an Imago dialogue, there's one speaker at a time and the other person is listening and they're mirroring back everything they hear so that the person feels completely heard. And that's kind of the foundation of everything. And what what Haiti discovered is that sometimes when you do that, sometimes when you have a dialogue, it's it's great, but it's still just a conversation. And then there are other times when you have a dialogue when you feel really in the zone, like a flow kind of experience where you feel so connected and the problem almost dissolves because you realize that the bond that you have and the connection with each other is more important than any content and so she calls that the encounter Mm. and Uh. when an encounter happens um that's kind of what fuels love and fuels our our happiness you know and it's really intense I can, I can see how, how uh, th- this could potentially be tied in with the whole psychedelic experience because uh, I feel like in our uh, in, in my own life with a kind of practice that we have of uh, every once in a while having kind of a, a day to ourselves with a, with a psychedelic experience, that's exactly what happens is we have that mm-hmm. like re-encounter 
um, mm-hmm. where it's almost like you see each other for the first time again, mm-hmm. and it's just like the the ultimate connection, and nothing else matters. And I think that's uh, yeah, that's a, that's brilliant. Kevin, that just wow. gave me goosebumps because that's exactly it. And the difference is that the divine is present, right? That's, I think that's really the key difference. You can have a conversation all day long, but once it becomes a spiritual or divine conversation, it's a different realm. And you can get there lots of different ways, right? But of course, psychedelics yeah. is the fast track there. <laughs> yeah, 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 sure, sure, sure. That's, <laughs> I, it also makes me think, I, mean, I remember having this uh, kind of realization at, at one point of, I had uh, always had a lot of arguments with uh, past girlfriends and everything. And then when I, uh, with with my current girlfriend, so soon to be wife, uh, I had I had a, fiance, a realization. That's called a fiance, Kevin. <laughs> that's, is, that a, is that a fiance? I don't I don't speak French. Um, but, but, uh, yes, you do. Hey, uh, <laughs> man. Uh, but but no, I, I remember having the realization at one time very early on that uh, an argument was starting, and I was like, it was the first time I ever didn't want to argue, and I, and I thought like it doesn't really like it doesn't matter like none of that matters like nothing matters to me more than like her being okay, you know. Right, and right. I was like, I think that's at the the heart of that, uh, you know, the encounter, encounter experience you mentioned, where it's like mm-hmm. you're connected to the person, and the content is just uh, it's just interference. Right. And what's really important is the emotion behind it and all that's going on in your insides, right? Like the yeah. the whole felt experience of the conversation is what matters, not not the content. Yeah. Yeah. And as we talk about this and I think of what that encounter is or, you, you know, or what it could be or what it has been for me and my my personal experience is, um, you know, I don't know if it's unfortunate or, or not, but oftentimes it comes to the surface through a, a breakdown. You know, there it might begin with an argument or it might precipitate an argument, but there's a point where the emotion bubbles to the surface and mm. there's a willingness to be vulnerable because it's just like complete, um, mm. you know, it, it's, a, it's a breakdown. And, surrender. And the, surrender. Thank you. That's exactly the word I was looking for. Um, and man, it's, it can feel really great when you do surrender and when you do uh, kind of show yourself and be vulnerable. But, mm-hmm. God, I wish it wasn't so hard to get there at times. Well, that's the beauty of encounter-centered work is that there are tools to help you get there. And one of them is just simply slowing down. You mm. just slow everything down. In the beginning of a session, I have couples, they're sitting right across from each other like like holding hands about 18 inches between their noses and they're just looking in each other's eyes and breathing and waiting and just sitting there together and that alone will bring up emotion yeah it sort of reminds me of uh we we did uh last year on our anniversary did a uh our first tantra session and of course everyone went straight to the sexual part but there was actually nothing sexual about it right and uh and and that was kind of the beginning of the tension was just actually looking at each other spending time looking at each other and then mm-hmm. having kind of just just contact with with no other interference no other stimulus uh mm-hmm. so it was, yeah it was really 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 simple uh mm-hmm. but it works and powerful yeah that's why i did that this year as part of our opening ceremony yes right? yes, <laughs> yes. I was yep. just thinking about that Mm-hmm. Uh, we we uh, we were discussing before. Well, just to give some context, we have a uh, a sort of a, a ceremony at our camp every year, and Jamie has uh, been very central to that uh, that ceremony. And uh, well, maybe maybe Jamie, you could describe the the uh, the, the sort of uh, activity we did at the beginning of the ceremony. Um, sure. So it was a version of a um, a Buddhist meditation that I can't remember the name of right now. Um, Loving kindness? Maybe. I think there's a more specific name. Um, I can I can look that up and figure it out. But uh, so the idea is to start by looking at someone and connecting with them. And it's someone who you already have love for. So your love is present and um, easy to connect with. 
And then you, sort of in concentric circles, you widen your love so that you then start to send your love to someone who you know and like, but you don't necessarily love, which is also pretty easy, right? And then you send love to strangers um, and, you know, it widens all the way out until you're sending love to people who you have really strong negative feelings toward, right? Like the worst people in the world, um, because the more you can grow your love, of course, the more you're healing the planet and it's a pretty powerful experience. So I thought it was a good way to begin Burning Man this year, given all the violence and hatred that's been bubbling up in our country between the election and all of the police shootings and everything else. I, I felt like I really wanted to be more active in helping there be more love in the world. And so that that's what I decided to do. I thought it was I, awesome. I got a lot out of that. I, yeah, <laughs> as did I, and I thought... I awesome. thought uh, p particularly, uh, I, I don't know why it, ca it came to mind when we were doing the activity. I mean, I guess there are a lot of negative things I could have thought about, but the one that was on my mind was um, ISIS. Mm -hmm. And I guess and I guess the reason was just, you know, obviously there had been a string of terror attacks in the summer and things, but it was also just, it was kind of the most present evil I had ever seen in my entire lifetime. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And uh, so that was very heavily on my mind and I thought like, what a nice way uh, you know, just in your own mind to kind of combat the the feelings that that sort of terrorism can make you make you feel. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Combat the fear. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, that's it. Like love is the opposite of fear. So, what do we have? To, the only thing we have to do is keep growing our love. Was it the the, the end of the famous Bill Hicks "Life Is a Ride" uh, bit where you know he says it it comes down to a simple choice between love and fear. You know, and I always that piece is known for other other parts that are maybe funnier or more enlightening. But I always thought that was such a nice uh, re reduction. You know, mm -hmm. it really is that simple. Yeah, yeah, I come back to that a lot. Mm -hmm. I yeah. my clients a lot. And that's yeah. what I remind them that they're always choosing between love and fear. Every little choice, especially in a relationship. Well, speaking sure. of uh, Burning Man, I'd love to, you know, Joe mentioned it before, but I, I'd love to hear more about uh, your both of your experiences volunteering at Zendo and, you know, what, what you got out of that and what you observed. Um, mm. Yeah. It was pretty funny. I remember when, when you arrived, Jamie, you know, we, we on the show had interviewed uh, Sarah from the Zendo Project of MAPS. Um, months ago and we were planning on participating in, in some ways and I was signed up for the training and for a volunteer, a couple of volunteer uh, uh, sessions in the Zendo um, uh, tent at Burning Man. And uh, when you arrived, mm -hmm. you, were, you were all excited about having met this guy on the bus <laughs> and uh, yeah. he was telling you about this thing called the Zendo and, and so we connected <laughs> yeah. right away on that. Yeah, like I'm going to this training tomorrow. You should come. And you're like, oh, yeah, I'm going. I'm going. Yeah. <laughs> oh, perfect. <laughs> yeah. I was yeah. also blown blown away. We started. We got to when we arrived on the playa this year. We like we, we parked and we started like taking things out of the car. And then I look over and I'm like, is that the? That's a Zendo right there. <laughs> right, right next door to our camp. Like, uh, yeah. how is that? Unbelievable. Yeah. So perfect. And it's so strange how things crystallize. I'd heard of the Zendo and I had this vague idea that it existed and about what it did, but it never really like came together in my head until all of a sudden there it was. I learned about it on the bus. Joe knows about it. We're going tomorrow. Like, bam, done. Right. Done. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. So interesting. And for listeners who maybe haven't been to Burning Man, um, something being right next door is uh, kind of a you know <laughs> yeah. pretty huge coincidence when you consider that right. you know there could be something you know I mean you don't see a lot of the playa um, most of it right. you know uh, except serendipitously perhaps but to have some neighbor that is uh, you know so uh, so aligned with our own uh, you know purpose um, is is really yeah quite a coincidence. I I th by the way, I think that's how the Zendo guys felt about being next door to us. We <laughs> <laughs> have uh, quite a reputation, yeah. 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 Mm -hmm. we're, we're a pretty big True. deal. 
We are. Yeah, my sister went to a music festival this weekend and randomly was talking to some people. And, of course, Burning Man came up. And, of course, you know, Where Do You Camp came up. (gasps) You guys are the best. (laughs) (laughs) So cool, right? (laughs) That's that's what happens when you live on the West Coast. This has not happened to me ever. Right, right. Or on this side of the Atlantic. What, um, you know, I talked to you guys both at Burning Man about Zen. And also, I don't, uh, it'd probably be good, Joe, to, to remind everyone what Zendo is and does exactly. Um, mm-hmm. but, but after that, I'd also love to hear some of your, your stories because I feel like I got bits and pieces, uh, out there, but I didn't get, uh, you know, the full, the full story. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, the Zendo project is a, um, a project of MAPS, the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies, and they do psychedelic first aid for festivals and events. And this year, they've been at to Burning Man in the past, um, but this year was the first year where they were sort of officially recognized. Um, everyone who a- attended Burning Man received a Zendo uh, sort of like pamphlet in, in their, uh, you know, introductory materials. Um, and the Zendo project had, you know, posters uh, inside the uh, porta potties and the porta potties. Yeah, it's, I was going to say I read those daily. Yeah, <laughs> daily at, at least, right? Um, and uh, you know, they they became, I guess, accepted as not as part of the Burning Man organization, but um, as a sort of uh, necessary aspect, I guess, um, uh, of of a mm-hmm. festival like Burning Man. And welcomed in that way, you know, providing this psychedelic harm reduction. Um, so it was a pretty big sort of like coming out party for uh, for the Zendo project at Burning Man this year. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, I actually have their flyer that they gave everybody um, in front of me. And I can read their mission and vision if you'd like. Oh, nice. Good call. Sure. So the mission of the Zendo project is to provide a supportive environment and education to help transform difficult psychedelic and psychological experiences into opportunities for learning and growth. In their vision, we envision a world where communities are engaged in providing safety and support for people having psychedelic and psychological challenges, and harm reduction principles are used foremost to reduce the risks associated with substance use. So they are, of course, psych- psychedelic harm reduction, but people are welcome who are also having non-substance-related psychological yeah, crises. That's exactly, that's exactly what jumped out to me when you when you reread it, and I remember yeah. uh, that that kind of striking a chord with me when I was reading that myself, and that it's not just about kind of handling the party; it's handling yourself in this in this context, right? right. And it's something we, that's so oof. applicable outside of it. We all know that Burning Man will bring on the biggest of personal growth challenges, whether or not you're using any substances. And it's not just a sort of wink and a nudge kind of thing when they, you know, to talk about psychological challenges. Um, I remember one one couple that approached the Zendo uh, when I was uh, sort of greeting, standing outside, um, just were having kind of interpersonal issues, really more so than anything substance based or, you know, psychedelic mm-hmm. uh, inspired. You know, they they were just having a, a difficult time as a couple at Burning Man, which is something mm-hmm. that's sort of well uh, established. It can be stressful for for couples. Um, they were you know a younger couple, and I guess they had you know planned on spending the day together. And uh, you know, one of them was disappointed that the other one had sort of snuck away for a half hour or something like that, or or had some other uh, you know opportunity arise and and sort of you know I guess broke that commitment is how the other person interpreted it. And uh, so they were just having this, you know, stress around all the different competing, uh, you know, opportunities at Burning Man and how it was bringing them some difficulty, you know, in their relationship. And really psychedelics and substances in general just did not enter into any of that conversation whatsoever. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, one of the guys I worked with as well was having really an identity issue because, of course, you get to Burning Man and it's a culture stripped of all the things that we usually identify ourselves with. And this was a you know, young kid who was maybe 22, 24. And he was all of a sudden questioning, like, who am I? And who are my friends? And what are their intentions? And it, yeah, same thing, it really had nothing to do with psychedelic use or even substance use. It was just a, a, a really odd kind of awakening moment. For sure. Yeah. And on the other hand, I, I did encounter a couple of uh, people who, 
needed some help, um, who probably, you know, were, I guess their, um, their troubles were exacerbated by the substances uh, that they had, had consumed. Um, and in one case, it was more of a, I, th I think, a sleep deprivation kind of scenario, um, probably mm -hmm. not exactly helped by the substances. Uh, like in his case, um, you know, he, he approached us and he said, I, I just need somewhere safe. And I said, you know, you found the right place. You know, um, what what's going on? And he said he he was hearing voices. He was hearing people, um, you know, sort of like plotting against him and try, you know trying to find him and you know corner him in an alley and and that kind of thing. And I think uh, Kevin, you pointed out um, there aren't really any alleys at Burning Man, so <laughs> yeah, yeah. it's like not really a sure. fear founded in, in uh, reality. Um, you know, and he heard people on radios and stuff like that. So I said, okay, this guy probably just needs some sleep. That was the first thing that, that you know came to mind. And I said, have you um, you know had any uh, substances? Uh, and he said, oh uh, no, well some cannabis a couple days ago. Okay, you know that's uh, not a big deal, um, and should not be causing this. It went, you know, when was the last time you slept? And he hadn't really slept in a while. Um, he had tried to sleep, but he was, you know, he was a little stressed out and stuff, and he just didn't feel safe. Um, and he was looking for a way to, to like get out of there as easily as quickly as possible, and you know, and uh, safely. And he kept he was just interested in like getting out of there safely, kind of thing. But I think he also mm. knew he needed sleep. Um, so we kind of brought him inside and talked a little bit more, and he. He said, um, you know, by the way, you know, last night, um, it was probably about 3 a.m. I was, you know, riding along uh, Esplanade and, and I, I tried, I, I smoked something. And, uh, and I was like, what, uh, you know, what was that? Was that the cannabis? And he said, well, no, it was like, it was a psychedelic. And I was like, what, uh, what psychedelic did you smoke, you know? Um, uh, you know, just trying to get some more information. He said it was some kind of a liquid and uh you know it's just vaporized so i'm thinking like here come on airwood you know come on uh 20 year ago <laughs> research you know into all these, uh, substances you got this job when i should have been working my corporate uh job you know <laughs> come on you can do this come on brain and i'm thinking i'm thinking d dipt i think or dpt i couldn't remember which one and it was um it's this uh it's a tryptamine and it it can generate audio hallucinations and it, I thought it could be smoked. And, and so I did some research. We had service this year at Burning Man, which is kind of interesting. AT&T had cell coverage. So I did look it up on Arrowhead at the time. Um, and sure enough, it was, it was uh, I'm pretty sure, DIPT. And this is, you know, some mysterious substance he, he encountered. I mean, it seems pretty odd that you'd, like, just randomly <laughs> end up smoking some <laughs> mysterious psychedelic Um uh, and it has a side well, of well, I mean, he, he he was in an alley to start with, so that's <laughs> right. <laughs> I guess in a dark alley at Burning Man, perhaps. But, um, but you know, the, so the picture emerged of like this guy's, you know, night. He he had been up for I don't know how many days. He smoked something that you know caused auditory hallucinations, um, and it, you know he was hearing voices, and he thought people were on the radio. And I remember at one point he said. Um, when he rides past somebody on a bike uh, and they ring their bell, you know, they're identifying him like they're they're saying, like, he's over here. And I was uh, like, I was like, when I ride past him on the bike, I, you know, when they ring the bell, I think they're actually saying, like, I'm here. Like, you know, here, right. here I am. Don't run in. Don't drive your bike into me. And he right. was like, get out of my way. Right. And he's like, oh, yeah. He's like, I guess that makes sense. So he kind of relaxed a bit. He took it. He laid down. He He, he slept for about two hours. I checked back in with him, and up until this point, he had this complete monotone voice, like very, like, I don't know what you'd say, like clinically, like he, his affect was like off. It was like very sort mm -hmm. of like, you know, flat neutral, affect is flat what we affect. call that. Ah, yep. thank you. Exactly. So he, mm -hmm. he just, like, he did a 180 when he woke up after these two, this two hour nap. He was like, I said, you know, how are you feeling? He goes, oh, I feel, I feel much better. So he just, you know, he was like, that's all. He just needed to sleep for a couple hours. Mm -hmm. It's kind of amazing that if the Zendo did only that, it would be a much needed service in Burning Man, like just a safe, quiet place to sleep where people have your back. Exactly. And I was a little worried going into it, not having any real you know, therapeutic background, not knowing if I'd be able to help people. But it was. It turned out really. It's just about you know talking with them and, and you know, I, yeah. Providing a I was gonna say, yeah, Joe. I have I have, I have no no doubt, doubt about you in that sense. I'm like, you, first of all, you've been friends with me for like my whole life, so like you've had tons of practice anyway. Like, <laughs> <laughs> well, and then, one uh, of 
Sorry, JB, go ahead. One of, one of the principles of the Zendo is sitting, not guiding. So you're even though I think some of us did do a lot of guiding at the Zendo, just sitting is enough, more than enough. So, Jamie, you ended up sitting, as you mentioned, for quite a while um, with, I think it was one of the first people I saw you working with. And, and it, not only was it you sitting with this person for uh, like almost an entire shift of eight hours, um, mm-hmm. the mysterious man from the bus, um, another yes. therapist, <laughs> uh, you, you guys were sort of like, you know, tag teaming this one very intensive um, kind of case. Can, do you yes. want to talk a little bit about that one? Yeah, I'd love to. It was such an amazing experience. Um, this guy had come into the Zendo the night before and had been sleeping for 12 hours, I think, at the Zendo. And when he woke up, he was ready to talk to someone. And um, so Mr. What, what should we call Mr. Mysterious Bus Man? <laughs> Mr. E? <laughs> Let's call him Dr. E. Yeah, so Dr. E... Um, immediately honed in on the fact that his biggest issue was um, alcohol. And this actually happened twice with another young man as well. Mm. Both of these young men had taken just about every substance known to mankind. Like literally one of them said, well, well, Dr. E was asking him, you know, what substances have you taken? And he said, I think it would be easier for me to list the substances I haven't taken. (laughs) (laughs) And immediately Dr. E was like, so listen, alcohol is your problem. And, um, that's, that's what's causing all of these issues for you. And he, he kind of rattled off, like, are you having this problem? Are you having this problem? And he was like, yep, 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 yep. And basically this guy had completely hit rock bottom, like not only of his burn, but of his entire life. And, um, long story short between the two of us, after several hours, he decided to to get clean and we sent him off to an AA meeting the next day. And maybe it was the first um, day of the rest of a sober life. Wow. Wow. Yeah, it was amazing. And the other thing that I I loved about um, working with Dr. E is that to him, substances were not all equal and some are harm reducing and some are harm causing and alcohol was at the top of his list of harm causing substances alcohol and cigarettes you know those are actually the two substances that are most likely to kill you and when it comes to alcohol most likely to wreck your life and he actually saw psychedelics as the window to what how can things get better for me yeah, which is maybe a good segue into, you know, the whole idea of a bad trip and, you know, the, um, what, what we learned about how to sit with people is how do you take these scary, bad experiences that people call hell that happen when they're on psychedelics and translate them, right? What is it actually trying to tell you? It's trying to tell you that something's broken about your life and what, what is that and what do you need to fix about your life? And it's so um, efficient. <laughs> it's amazing. <laughs> right. It's a great way to put it. it it's it, Psychedelics are very efficient at doing that for sure. Yeah. Yeah. One thing that came to mind when, you know, differentiating between that all, not all substances are, are equal, you know, we've talked before about, you know, the, the highly unsuccessful uh, dare program and how it did kind of stipulate that all substances were created equal and they were all meant to be avoided. Mm-hmm. And it's just, that's, I mean, talk about misinformation. It's just so inaccurate and, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and it, it, like the ability for a psychedelic to reflect and to, to give you information to grow, um, yeah. man, you know, with the right set and setting, uh, absolutely from my own personal experience, uh, it, it can be incredibly powerful. To your point, Brad, um, you know, on the topic of the, the substances that are legal and the ones that are illegal and lumping things in or, or making those distinctions, as you mentioned, Jamie, that, uh, that Dr. E did, um, I, you know, part of me used to think uh, this is a, probably the biggest part of me used to think this is a conspiracy that tobacco and alcohol are the, the legal and, you know, uh, the substances that are, uh, you know, allowed and even encouraged um, in right. our society and all the other ones, which are all the good ones are, are illegal. 
Um, and I'm not sure it's a conspiracy. I think it is probably the greatest irony, though. Mm-hmm. And, and I think it's ignorance, too. Right, exactly, and that's the, comes from the misinformation, and and uh, I mean, there's there's mm-hmm. really when you think about it, I don't know if it's a disinformation campaign. Maybe that gets into the conspiracy aspect of things, but there's certainly tons of misinformation. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I think that some of it is, you know, it borders on disinformation because it is sort of actively promoted by programs like the Dare program and stuff like that. But the number of people that you talk to about psychedelics, who their first question is is something about you know, it like it, acid being bad for you, like how, how, you know, mm-hmm. yeah, but it's so bad. It's like bad in what way? Well, you know, it's yeah, like, like you're, you're, you're throwing your life down the drain or something. <laughs> right. It's like right. they want people uh, while, while, while they're, they're drinking like straight scotch, you know, right. <laughs> right. or what, what Rick Doblin talked about with, um, MDMA making holes in your brain. Right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And it's so hard to undo that stuff. And that, that was a particularly yeah. nefarious thing where, you know, they show the brain scan of like the areas that are, you know, not active in the areas that are active and stuff like that. And, they, and then it gets misreported as like, see those areas where there's no light. That's where the holes are. You know, it's like, mm-hmm. that's not actually the way the scan works, but anyway, it's not even, it's not even possible, but, uh, <laughs> right. but, uh, but really apart bad. from that, I, I find the fascinating thing about this sort of misinformation thing is that even if you are a proponent of, uh, of the substances have had good experiences, you can't, you can't, ever completely dismiss some of those things when you hear them and they may lurk in the back of your mind and they may be the cause at some point of a bad trip or Mm. or something like that because you know you're having a great time and at the moment it gets hard it's like oh my god (laughs) one of those maybe i finally took too much you know or something like that i definitely have holes in my brain right now (laughs) Well, the really bad study was the one where they um, they gave the mice uh, the, just the wrong drug. You know, no big deal. Just the complete wrong substance when they were, you know, the, the uh, I think it was like, a, I forget who funded it, the NIH or something like that. Um, and, you know, it, it supposedly demonstrated the entirely harmful effects of uh, MDMA and how it would, you know, in, in a normal dose that a teenager <laughs> might take at a rave, it will just like probably kill you. And it's like, whoa, how Rick, Rick Doblin's point was, like this is not happening though like well, how could this study demonstrate this and this is not actually like evident in in reality so something's wrong here and sure enough uh, it turned out that they the bottles were supposedly mislabeled this is the conspiracy <laughs> side as well um, and instead of giving the the rats or the mice uh, MDMA they gave them uh, methamphetamine which is active in much lower uh, dosage ranges so the the same mm-hmm. quantity the, what, what would have been a normal dose of MDMA was a lethal dose of methamphetamine so I mean it's no surprise it did so much damage um, but mm-hmm. you know the the damage was done to the uh, the cause to you know and, keep... and the monkeys don't forget about the monkeys man you know <laughs> Were, were they? Yeah, was it a monkey study? I don't. I don't remember. I thought. I, th- I thought. I. Th- I recall from the book that I think that was a was a monkey study. Yeah, and I just felt like like what a horrible death. You know, I mean, like killing the monkey in the first place by like a methamphetamine death. God. Right. Yeah, really sad. Mm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, Jamie, speaking speaking about uh, information, misinformation, and disinformation. Um, one of the things uh, kind of I had on my agenda was. Um, I think one of the things that probably unites everyone in this community is that uh, we have to talk to people who are not in this community <laughs> and try not to uh, proselytize or to convince anyone of anything. But but I, I do feel, at least in my case, I don't want to tell anybody what to do, but I, I do have very low tolerance for hearing misinformation and I do feel the need to kind of defend the truth at times. Mm-hmm. Um and so I guess I guess my question is how how I mean as a as a psychologist is there maybe um, a, a way that we can communicate better with uh, the outside world? A way we can communicate better. Hmm. Um, you have to be louder and more aggressive, I think. Right? No, just joking. <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> right. <laughs> just what I teach my couples. <laughs> just scream louder; she'll hear you. That's right. Oh, great. Then I definitely don't need your therapy. I'm doing just fine. Um, well, I guess my language is the language of personal growth. And, you know, there are all kinds of ways to grow. And 
there's no getting around the truth that psychedelics is a really unique and really efficient and powerful and divinely guided um, map for personal growth. And, you know, it's almost, it almost feels like the thing that could put me out of business, right? Like who needs a psychologist when there's psychedelics around? Well, I, I would, I would even, I would say the opposite. I would say that I, um, I, you know, obviously the the recreational use is like uh, very obvious, but in terms of the the spiritual or or um, or the growth aspect of psychedelics, uh, it's almost you know, one of the things you read about in these studies all the time is, for example, Michael Midhoffer, who I uh, absolutely love, says that he when he discovered um, psychedelics as a doctor, he thought you know this is this is uh, this has kind of the inner healing intelligence that the body has. And this allows mm-hmm. the mind the mind to do the same thing, but but that uh, the uh, the presence of a prof- of a professional is um is just very necessary, mm-hmm. and I feel right. like it's it's I would love for there to be psych- psychedelic therapy available, and there are so many things mm-hmm. I would love to go talk to someone about with that protocol in place, but that that having the the person would be really the key because it can be so um, misguided without it. Right. Yeah, that is that is very true. So all that needs to happen is the marriage of the two, right, of therapy and psychedelics. It's a perfect combination, which yeah, is that's... coming, right? Coming. It's maybe five years away is what Doblin said at this point. So by the way, by the way, when it happens, Rick Doblin will finally get the job he always wanted, right? Yes. <laughs> yeah. And now it's the job I want. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, it's it's. The, the therapist's best friend because one of the big challenges in therapy is that you can't get inside someone's head and so you rely on their self-report and their self-report is exactly the problem because they see things through a distorted lens and I can't see the undistorted lens but you know the the spirit molecule can so it's it's yeah it's a great again a shortcut Rick uh, talked about um some opportunities for therapists who who may want to get involved in psychedelic therapy. And I mean, when he said that, I was like blown away that this is already a topic of, of uh, consideration. And I, I probably shouldn't yeah. have been. Um, but uh, one avenue that might accelerate uh, the track to becoming a psychedelic therapist is um, what's what's the um, there's like a fast track to allowing uh, additional patients into like the phase three trial, for example, and therefore to to uh, there's a need for more therapists to be involved in in perhaps the mm-hmm. phase three trials, even if you're mm-hmm. I guess it counts for um, the safety, uh, but not necessarily the effic- efficacy. Studies. Right. Right. The safety trials. Uh huh. Because they need larger numbers. Mm hmm. Yeah, I've actually written to Shannon about that to see if I can um, participate, but she's like, I don't know, busy on some trip or something. <laughs> but yeah, um, no pun intended. Um, <laughs> she'll be she'll be back in six hours. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> well, yeah, she probably won't um, be doing email at that point, though. <laughs> right, right, and um, CIIS, the California. Institute for Integral Studies uh, has a psychedelic studies program now, which kind of blows me away. Like we're still years away from it being a legal thing for therapists to use, but we're already training people on how to do it, which is fantastic. Yeah, it's incredible. Yeah, their inaugural class, I think, has just wrapped up their year of training. That's amazing. That that I would love for that to have been in the offer of majors when I was going to school. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> Me too. I'm definitely going to sign up for it, though. Well, Kev, even though you didn't major in it, you did stumble upon uh, Professor Ruck <laughs> and uh, you know the, true, the true. namesake of our show to begin with. So happy accident <laughs> there. Absolutely. Jamie, do you know much about what you know the program at CIIS and and uh, you know how that's structured and and you know oh. what people are doing thereafter? Uh, not much, um, but a little bit. All I really know is I saw their schedule of trainings. So it's a a year long program, I believe, and it's done in sort of a weekend evening and an occasional week long kind of format. Gotcha. Uh, and each segment, this is the amazing part, each segment is taught by 
pretty much you know the world expert on the topic right so it's not just one professor all year long you get taught by um, all of the experts um, yeah and that's about all I know cool yeah one thing I, I was very uh, interested to learn as a uh, completely uneducated layman um, who has an interest in this field uh, is that um, the the way that these studies, the, the at least the phase one and phase two trials have been designed so far, um, calls for uh, a, like a, usually a husband and wife or at least a team of of therapists, and only one of them actually needs to be uh, have any credentials whatsoever. I guess uh, needs to be a doctor, mm -hmm. I suppose, um, and the other can be you know operating in a like a supportive you know role or as an assistant to the therapy or something like that. Um, mm -hmm. So I was very interested to learn that um, because I suppose for the CIS program, you'd have to um, already have a background in, in mm -hmm. medicine. Well, in any kind of um, mental health treatment. So I think anything from a marital and family therapist to a community mental health um, person, or nurses, I think lots of different fields. But yeah, credentialed in something, right. some kind of uh, mental health care. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, I love that too. And I love how he just said that he wrote that in just so he could be part of it. <laughs> right. That was the Rick Doblin clause. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, awesome. Love it. Well, you know, far, far from being a uh, challenge to your job security, I think um, the way these, uh, you know, the, the way that this uh, therapy, you know, uh, currently, uh, is, is offered in practice is really job security for you because, um, every therapeutic session with MDMA will require one or two, um, therapists okay. to be, to be, mm -hmm. you know, assisting, um, there's a whole protocol around it. It's, it's just really interesting to learn about the way these trials are, are designed because it just seems so unlike any other kind of medicine or, th or therapy, mm -hmm. you know, taken in isolation. And it's a combination of medicine and therapy. Well, the interesting thing is it does seem very different from mainstream um, therapy or what's, yeah, mainstream therapy. But it's very similar to what happens on vision quests and other kinds of retreats like that where, you know, they're not in a medical office and they're not by an hour long appointment, you know, it's some, you go out into the wilderness for seven days and that's how you heal. You know, the, the shamanic uh, way, it's, it, it's exactly like that. So it's amazing that we're finally getting to the point where medicine and healing are converging. For sure. Yeah. We, in, we, in that context being the modern Western world, as opposed right. to our friends in the continent below who have been doing this for thousands of years. Yeah, well, many other continents. <laughs> True. No, yeah, good point. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, we're in some ways we, you know, I think we, there's a bit of hubris to being advanced. And then there's other ways, you know, perhaps medicinally and therapeutically where I, I feel like we're light years behind. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. One, one sort of uh, criticism or challenge with this therapy is just how long it takes, um, you know, scheduling a, a therapist or two to be available, you know, like for a, I don't know if it's an eight or 12 hour sort of period where there's like an overnight portion. Mm -hmm. um, there's like follow ups, you know, for the week after and, and things like that. Um, it mm -hmm. seems, you know, very demanding on, on a therapist's time. Uh, but then when you compare that to traditional therapy, mm. you know, one hour per week for many years in some cases, yeah. you know, yeah. the number of quote unquote man hours um, that it takes to, you know, help someone in that old model uh, is, is just infinitely, you know, uh, more, mm -hmm. you know, more demanding than, than one or two sessions with something like MDMA or, or uh, psilocybin. Um, mm -hmm. So it does hold a lot of promise and it is really interesting to think about how, um, how you know maybe just giving us more time and giving us as as people as patients more uh of that safe feeling to let the you know to let the mind sort of work on healing itself um mm -hmm. is it's just the end you know it's where we're ending up uh figuring out the most effective uh, treatment is mm -hmm. yeah it's actually far more efficient to spend a weekend instead of you know an hour a week for years on end Absolutely. How does that compare and, with your um, 
you know, long session, full day session with a couple, yeah, for example. Same thing. I mean, when I, yeah, I was thinking that here and had to restart my practice, my primary decision was I'm not going to set up a practice in the same format of weekly hour long sessions because A, I don't like it. It wears me out. And B, it's not very effective for my clients. And so rather than having a couple or an individual work with me for five years, I'm going to work with them for one weekend and send them on their way for you know, however long. Maybe they'll come back in three months. Maybe they'll come back in five years. Maybe they'll never come back. But I'm not tied to them, nor are they to me for, you know, getting along or doing okay in the world. Um, and it's really, it's deeper healing. So it's so much it's better for everybody. Excellent. Well, Jamie, it's been really great talking with you today. And uh, it, it's always great to talk to you. And it's really uh, been awesome to relive some of our experiences at uh, uh, Burning Man in the Zendo Project. And uh, mm -hmm. that that special ceremony that we've that's been become a tradition at camp. Um, mm. And I think in the interest of uh, kind of wrapping up here, I think maybe Kevin would like to uh, finish with a poem that uh, that was read at the beginning of, of that uh, ceremony this year. Yay! Sure. Justin's <laughs> poem. Awesome. Yes, 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 indeed. I, I, I selected a one one verse that is uh, the, the least. Uh, I always say the, mo the most universal uh, and, and least camp oriented. Um, but it was just such a brilliant uh, poem, so I felt we had to pay it some homage. So. Uh, here it is. He says, and with the power of our Eucharist, the mystical compound, more commonly known as lysergic acid diethylamine, we can, as smarter kids, uh, as smarter minds than mine describe, disrupt the default mode network in our brain, allowing us to relish in our pleasure receptors, illuminating the interconnectedness of life and urging us to quite literally trip the light fantastic. <laughs> so great. That was uh, that was one of the highlights of my week. I have to say, it was that uh, that ceremony and that poem. So, yeah, it's like a rallying I, cry. I agree. Yeah. Well, uh, we we did not mention uh, the uh, the Rick Doblin interview, but that was also uh, a tr tremendous uh, tremendous highlight. And I hope we can get Rick back on again sometime soon. <laughs> we also attended the day after that uh, the Rick Doblin talk, which was. Uh, which was great because I just I, I marvel at how he can speak for three hours with no notes. <laughs> and, and he's amazing structure. Yeah. 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 It's just it's brilliant. It was brilliant watching it. Yeah. That was a highlight for me for sure. that whole day. That was one of the best days of my life <laughs> between that, that talk day. and what followed. <laughs> yes. Mm -hmm. Awesome. I'm, I'm still integrating that whole experience from that that guided trip that we did joe with with dr e yeah it's just amazing that like, was kind of we should have you on another show and talk about that alone <laughs> sounds good yeah how did i miss that except i, I can't that? the problem is that i can't really put words to it it's just one of those experiences that's so non-human that their language doesn't seem to capture it at all It'll be a short show. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, man, I mean, this has been awesome, Jamie. I feel like you know, it's it's great to to you know talk about this, but also just to have you on the show and to learn more about you and and what you've got going on professionally and experientially. And thank you, thank you for taking the time to uh, talk to us today. Thank you. you uh, thank you very awesome. much, Jamie. I'm so thank glad. You and that you had this idea and that you're actually all putting the work in to make it happen every month. It's amazing. Thanks a lot. Uh, and then, and I hope, uh, that those, the two, the two fields converge soon and, uh, I can pay you a visit for a session. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good. Absolutely. Sounds good. Yeah. That's, I'll, I'll, be, I'll be next in line after that and uh <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome and uh yeah and so in the meantime uh if listeners are interested in uh getting in touch with uh, dr jamie they can reach out to entheogenshow.com and uh, we'll help make that connection uh you know and uh it, it would be good to plant those seeds for when that day comes that uh this therapy is is mainstream mm -hmm. can't come soon enough 
That's right. Can't come soon enough. Well, thanks uh-huh. again, Jamie. It's been really great talking with you. Thank you, guys. That was Entheogen, Talk About Tools for Generating the Divine Within. Find the notes and links for this and other episodes at entheogenshow.com. Sign up to receive an email when we release a new episode. Visit entheogenshow.com and click on support to pledge 2 or $10 per episode on our Patreon campaign. Follow us at Entheogen Show on Twitter and like Entheogen Show on Facebook. And most of all, thank you for listening. Mm-hmm.